to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Well, we're a week past Labor Day, which means everyone is back in full swing, including this podcast, as we're now going to return to our weekly format from now until we take about a month off around Christmas. So fasten your seatbelts because I've got some fantastic guests already lined up for this fall. Now, not to rub salt in the wound or anything, but this week my travels take me to the island of Oahu where I'm going to be working with Keleopu'u Elementary School for the entire week. Um, that school's about 30 minutes east of Waikiki, but this trip, I'm going to be staying in Waikiki in Honolulu uh, because my son has joined me on this trip. So we've been here since Friday. We've already had a great weekend, and it promises to be a rewarding week for us, both for me for work, but also a fantastic time for the two of us here in paradise. So we're really excited about the remainder of this week. Uh, He'll head home on Friday, and I'll head straight to Huntsville, Alabama for work next week. Now, a few reminders as we get going today. There's still time to register for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training that's happening in Long Beach, California next week. That'll be September 21st and 22nd. So if you want to attend that, there's still time to register and, and attend that event. If that's a little too tight a window for you, we'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd as well. All the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. Of course, there are links in the show notes for those events as well. Uh, The other conference I'm going to be at this fall, the Teach Better Conference in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Lots of great speakers. We're going to have a podcast row. Uh, It's going to be a great event. Use the code SHIMMER22 for a $25 discount on your registration, uh, and you'll get a discount there. Hope to see you there if you can attend the Teach Better Conference as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. Uh, This week, my guest is Joe Sanfilippo. Uh, Joe is the superintendent of Fall Creek School District in Fall Creek, Wisconsin. Joe is also an author and a speaker who writes and talks a lot about leadership. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. In an assessment corner this week, I'm going to spend some time talking about what the ultimate jackpot is when it comes to our assessment literacy. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. conversation with Joe Sanfilippo is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week with a bit of sage advice. Some advice that I want you to hold on to from this point forward. You ready for it? Here it is. When someone asks you a question, here's a novel idea. How about, I don't know, how about you actually answer the question? Seems simple enough, right? But I am sometimes amazed at how often this doesn't happen. Now, where's this coming from? What's made me think of this? You know it. Of course, social media. Now, here's the backstory. I belong to a few Facebook pages that act as sort of forums for people to discuss different ideas. And on the net, I actually quite enjoy them. Though, you know, like anything social media, they can be a bit much at times. So last week, someone posted a question about how to convert levels to percentages. Now, this, of course, is a legitimate question, as so many school districts have not caught up to the idea of grading on levels in so much as they still have grade books that don't accept integers, right? So now in fairness to the schools or the districts, grading programs can be very expensive in terms of purchasing the product and the expense of training staff. So it isn't as simple as just saying, hey, you know what, let's get another new program this year and try it out. These things are very expensive. So it's not surprising that the ideas in the school or classroom-based implementation doesn't catch up to the technology. So many teachers, and, and I do mean many because I meet them on a weekly basis, 
many teachers are left to navigate this imperfect system where we assess or grade on fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels, but we still have to operate within a percentage system. It's a legit question that so many teachers, principals, and even district staff are wrestling with. So I see this notification that someone has asked a question on the Facebook page. Now, I often don't respond to those questions because by the time I see the question, there's 37 answers, there's 44 responses to the answers, and it becomes kind of a pointless exercise and things just kind of get lost in the shuffle. So I go to look at the question, and again, it's a legit question, and there's only one response. And the first response I see on the page is this. The whole point is to get rid of percentages. There should be no conversion at all. Yeah, okay, awesome. Instead of answering the question, the first response is a theoretical challenge to the underpinning of the question. How is that in any way helpful? I'm pretty sure the person who asked the question was looking for a practical solution to a legitimate dilemma, not proof that the responder was theoretically superior. The question wasn't why or what's the theory behind or anything like that. The question was how. I, honestly, I just don't get it. I see this on Facebook. I see it on Twitter. And to be honest, I see it on every, almost every platform that I belong to. When someone asks a question, pontificating about your assessment superiority because you really get it is unhelpful, it's performative, and it's quite honestly nauseating. Telling someone, get rid of percentages in the first place, that's asinine. Now, what is the person supposed to say? Oh, okay. Uh, great idea. I hadn't thought of that before. Uh, I'll just call the principal or the superintendent right now and tell them, listen, we don't need a board meeting to change board policy. Someone on Facebook told me to get rid of percentages and by golly, that's what I'm going to do. Or I know it's a Department of Education policy statewide, but this dude on Twitter was really convincing and I'm pretty sure I can revise the state's policy uh, right after I get finished teaching fourth period. I already got my magic wand out. Good to go. By 4.30 tops, it'll be done. Seriously? We tell him, get rid of percentages. Oh, okay, yeah, hadn't thought of that before. One of two things are happening when people respond this way. And quite honestly, I think it's both. The first thing that's happening, the most obvious, is they don't actually have an answer. If you did, I'd be even more cynical about why you didn't answer the question in the way you answered it if you said to them, get rid of percentages. How about you answer the question? The second thing that could be happening is that they pounced on the opportunity to perform for the group. Let me flex my assessment chops right here to show you that I really get it. You might get it, but there's some next level shit coming your way. Now, I suspect the third option is that both things are happening, right? I don't have an answer, but that's not going to stop me from answering, right? Actually answering their question tells the person, first of all, that you actually heard their question. Now, I know politicians often answer the question they want to, not the question they were asked, and we all sort of expect that from them. But is that the bar? I think zero people aspire to that. Unless the question is rhetorical, questions are typically about seeking answers. And when we are directly or indirectly asked a question, I think it is the highest form of respect to authentically answer the question, even if the answer is, I don't know. Or how about, you know what, that's a good question. Let me think about that. I mean, anyone who's ever experienced this knows how incredibly frustrating it is, especially when it's face-to-face, -face. but even online. It's like, are you just using my questions as an opportunity to assert your intellectual superiority? Did you even read or hear my question? Watch for it. I promise you, you cannot unsee it. You cannot unhear it. Anyway, it's pretty straightforward. When someone asks you a question, answer it. 
If you don't have an answer, then either say so, or here's a thought, maybe don't answer and let those who do have an answer provide a real solution to the real problem that initiated the question asking in the first place. Joining me this week for the interview is Dr. Joe Sanfilippo. Joe is the superintendent of the Fall Creek School District in Fall Creek, Wisconsin. The Fall Creek School District was named an innovative district in 2016 and 2017 by the International Center for Leadership in Education. Joe has authored multiple books, including the best-selling book, Hacking Leadership, 10 Great Ways Leaders Inspire Learning That Teachers, Students, and Parents Love, and his latest book, Lead From Where You Are, Building Intention, Connection, Direction in Our Schools. Joe was selected as one of 117 future ready superintendents in 2014 and one of 50 superintendents as a personalized learning leader by the U.S. Department of Education in 2016. Education Dive named Joe their National Superintendent of the Year in 2019. So let's just sum it up, listeners, and say that the street cred is there when it comes to <laughs> leadership. <laughs> Joe, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that's, that made me laugh a little bit. So yeah, at this point, I think the podcast is probably over at this point. I got to do no. something. But let's just shut. This is just, a, you know, it's so funny because when I go to speak places and they say, you know, do you have your bio and everything? I just tell them, just tell them this is Joe. He's from Wisconsin yeah. and he tells stories. That's because yeah. nobody cares about the other stuff. At the no, same I time. hear you. I just tell them if, if, if I'm awful, <laughs> I'm awful. That's just the way that it works, man. So <laughs> That's right. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you and some, uh, talk about some of the great things that are happening in Fall Creek, Wisconsin. But uh, just an honor to be with you today. Great. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I know, I hear what you're saying. People say when I when I do my workshops and stuff, they're like, hey, how do you want me to introduce you? I'm like, here's Tom. We're going to talk about assessment or grading or whatever we're talking about. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm, I might have a six part slideshow set to music about my life in the in the car, but just we'll save that for the after lunch period <laughs> or something like that. Um, I've uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now because I've been an observer, admirer of your work from a distance mm -hmm. and obviously through social media. You and I have never met before, mm -hmm. uh, but it's great to finally meet you. And, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I thought we could dig into leadership, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, leadership in general, and then maybe get specific as we go along. But before we dive into the topic of leadership, I mean, I, I talked a little bit about your accolades, the things that, uh, you know, some of the highlights, the sports center of Joe's career. But can you briefly highlight for listeners some of the various roles and responsibilities that you've had over the course of your career? Where did you start teaching? Uh, what led and, and sort of what led you to the point now where you're the superintendent of the Fall Creek School District in, in Fall Creek, Wisconsin? That, well, I think, well, I started teaching, I taught kindergarten for six months and that was, that was enough of that because, <laughs> oh my goodness, that was, yeah. that, they, I, hey, I'll tell you, I, they are, kindergarten teachers have all of my heart right now because man, I was, it is something else. But at the same time, I love going to kindergarten. I also love leaving kindergarten, but I love going to kindergarten now. So anyway, I taught kindergarten and then I taught second grade. I taught fifth grade. I was a school counselor. Uh, I coached at the high school level. Uh, and then I was a, a, a principal at an elementary school in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is about 10 minutes outside of, of Fall Creek and in a bigger district, about 10,000 students. And um, and then I was the uh, uh, principal here in Fall Creek for a year and then became the elementary principal and superintendent for, for three. And then I've been in the superintendent role since then. So. It's been a, a wonderful experience, uh, you know, just kind of getting through to a number of different levels and 
getting a chance to see how people lead and, and live and learn at different spaces has been um, essential for me, but also tr just a tremendous amount of joy that comes along with making sure that you're connected to different parts of, of organizations. So that's kind of been the, the, the trajectory that got me here. And um, it's been a heck of a ride. If I think about the idea that this is this started in my goodness, 97. So we're looking at what is that 25 years? I guess I guess I don't even think about it anymore into the uh, into the, in the profession. And it seems like yesterday that I was walking in for the first time, trying to figure out what I was going to say to these kindergarten kids. Two things come to mind as you you were responding there. First, I, I'm uh, I'm impressed you lasted six months in uh, in, in <laughs> kindergarten. I, I you know when I I was, I'm a secondary trained teacher. High school history yeah. was was where I began my career, and and I always you know let secondary teachers know whenever I have the opportunity that just because your students are older does not mean your job is more complex. Every high oh. school teacher or middle school teacher should spend a day observing a kindergarten teacher, and you're going to walk out of that room with two things. One, you're going to be thanking God you are not a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> and two, you're going to be so impressed with the work that kindergarten teachers do. Yeah. So shout out to kindergarten teachers because it's some of the most impressive work that you see in education. And I also now recognize that you are getting to the age where, like I am, this is my 32nd year in education, mm -hmm. started in 91. You're getting to the age now where you started teaching before some of the teachers in your school district were born. Uh, 25 <laughs> years so so now that's gonna make you feel old there joe <laughs> uh, you, know, you didn't you didn't have to do that man like I, well i yeah. think you know they, i think i started when i started you know i took the, the kindergarten job i was actually student teaching in the room and yeah. the woman that i was student teaching with was uh going on maternity leave and they asked me to stay and do the remainder of the year for it. I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. I know these kids. Like I've had them for six months or for six weeks already. And they're like, what? I, I know everybody. I know how they operate. And then I got to my own spot and I'm like, good grief. What yeah. in the world happened? Right. <laughs> so I mean, it's a different, yeah, totally it, different it is, conversation. Yeah. You, you are, you really are a special kind of person. If you can teach kindergarten, <laughs> I just have to, I, I have to give that shout out there. Okay. I want to start uh, with some big ideas about leadership and then kind of drill down later on to some specific habits and practices that you kind of think maximize the effectiveness of school leaders. Mm -hmm. But I want to begin with this question and, and, and I want to get your perspective on this. Can, can everyone be an effective leader? In other words, you know, we say this a lot. Everyone's a leader. Everyone can lead. But is that is that really true? Is leadership entirely about just learning to lead? Or are there some innate qualities or characteristics that you either have to possess or maybe you have to nurture? I'm thinking maybe, you know, if I'm generally an impatient person or something like that, how do I do I need to do to nurture that a little bit? I guess what I'm asking is nature versus nurture, right? Um where do you land on that? Is leadership just a mechanical exercise in learning how to lead? Or are there aspects that we at least need to draw out of ourselves or lean on in order to be effective? Well, that's a great question, because I think what you, when you're talking about, you know, if you're an impatient person, can you can you lead people? You already are leading people. If you're impatient, you're just leading them in a way that like reflects who you are as the person in that space. So, yeah, you can lead. That doesn't you know, there's a difference between everybody can be a leader and everybody can be a great leader. Everybody's leading in some capacity. It's just a, yeah. the question becomes, what are they leading people towards? Because Fair. there's a lot of toxic leading leadership happening. You know, when it comes down to just people, you know, emulating things that they probably shouldn't at the same time, they're leading the, 
those around them in that direction. And I think that when we tell people that everybody can be a lead, we tell people everybody is a leader because they are in terms of who's around them. It doesn't matter if you're leading two people, 20, 200, 2000, people are watching the work that you do and are going to either uh, go forward with the work that you do, or they're going to look at that work and say, Oh my gosh, I do not want to be like that. So they go in a different direction, but you still led them to a place where they have to make a decision. And, and, and we talk about the idea in terms of leadership that we really have to define, you know, I think the, the problem with leadership is people define it as position as opposed to the qualities that, that make you who you are and what you do around you. It's not like, you know, you, you don't have to have the position to lead at the same time people perceive that you have to have the position to lead. And when you perceive that you have the need the position to lead, you work towards that position as opposed to the leadership prospect of the things that are going on around you. So that's and, and that inhibits your leadership as well, because now you're looking for the position because people will say all the time, well, you know, when I get the position of X, I'll be able to lead the way that I want. Well, you're already leading that way you're already doing that people are following you in that regard so if you think you're just going to shift and go into something different the minute that you get the position that you desire you're already falling flat on your face so mm -hmm. we talk about the impact of every interaction we talk about the opportunity to recognize acknowledge and extend the great work that happens in schools and those are leadership traits that people don't even realize are happening with them but at the same time they're happening across the board so the answer is absolutely unequivocally that everybody leads. The question becomes, are you a positive leader? Or are you a toxic leader for the people that you serve? Okay. So what, what makes me a toxic leader? What would you, just some of the character. I, and again, I'm not suggesting, I don't, I want listeners to be clear on, I'm not talking about whether or not you need to be the, the caricature of the charismatic leader, the Correct. snake oil salesman. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm thinking about dispositions, things like that. So, so what makes me a toxic, what could potentially makes me, make me a toxic leader uh, in a sense? Well, I think the, the thing is, if if you couple things, the, the first thing is that if, if you believe that the, that the organization is about the leader, you've already lost your way, because right. if, if you get to the point where it's about you, then those you serve, you, we're not trying to create clones of ourselves. In fact, when you do that, you're actually completely inhibiting the people around you. And I did that when I started. I thought I need it this way. I want it this way. I've got a list. This list is going to be done this way. And, you know, I got to the place where, you know what, if people weren't doing it the way that I wanted, I'm like, forget it. I'll just do it myself. You know what? If you can't do it, that I'm just going to do it myself. And so what ended up happening was I became more of a help desk rather than a helper, right? So what happens is when people see that you're just going to do it for them, the people that just want stuff fixed will give you stuff all the time to fix it because they know you're going to fix it. But the people that just want to grow in their leadership capacity, stop asking you to help them because they're like, why would I help? You're just going to do the whole thing for me. So I think you got to be really cognizant about the people that you lead. And if you don't know the people that you lead or can connect with the people that you lead, then you have no opportunity. I shouldn't say it like that. You have less of an opportunity to help the organization grow because you don't know what the organization needs. So that I think that ends up being pretty toxic in terms of of what it goes. I think the also the other toxic thing when it comes to leadership is people who are just in pursuit of power. And if you're just in pursuit of power for the people that you lead, then you're never going to have enough. And you're also going to knock the people down because you don't believe that they're on the same level as you. 
And that doesn't matter if it's in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the classroom or if it's in the building or if it's in the district or if it's in the community. You know, you have to be able to figure out ways that, you know, it's not about power over somebody. It's about in, encouraging and, and, and bringing power to other people. And hopefully in doing that, you, you figure out a way to move people forward. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that and subscribe to that idea as well, that that it's not about title. I've mm -hmm. often said that leadership is more about influence than it is title. And if you need your title to lead, then you're probably not much of a leader in terms of because that is that power, right? Yeah, Sometimes we need title because we have access to budget. Sometimes we need title because we have the ear of the superintendent or the mm -hmm. principal, et cetera. But, but there is, there's influence all around us. Now, when we think about, and, I, and this next question is more framed around maybe for the principal or for the superintendent or somebody who does have the title, but there seems to be in society now, and I don't know if you subscribe to this view or not, but there seems to be in society now a growing intolerance for mistakes. Um, you know, just being able to own your mistake and apologize for it doesn't seem to be enough for a lot of people, especially in significant situations, even though we know that there's no one on this planet, including every single school leader who's perfect. So we have to expect there are going to be missteps along the way. So when a leader makes a mistake, when there's a mistake, misjudging a situation that involves two students, maybe it's a situation where you've overreacted negatively toward a colleague or a parent meeting's gone sideways. What is the best way from your perspective to handle those mistakes that allows you to sort of maintain your credibility as a leader, even though we've got to admit maybe that there's a mistake? What are some of the ways that we navigate through those situations that leaders often have to deal with? I think the first thing you need to do is say you're sorry and yeah. truly and mean, mean it. Because if you say, oh, yeah, I messed that up and then just move on and continue to do things the same way that you've always done them, then you weren't really sorry for what you did. So I think you have to be, first of all, intentional about saying that you're sorry and specifically what you're sorry for. There are times that I make a, a, what ends up being a bad decision that came from the right place, but it was a bad decision in the long run. And I just and I will say at that point, well, I, I missed that one. Here's what led up to that decision. And I'm sorry that it didn't hit the way that I felt like it was going to hit or we felt like it was going to hit. And and uh, here's what we're doing moving forward. But that that's a big piece of that is here's what we're doing moving forward. And if you can apologize to somebody because there's two different there's two different ways we have to think about this. The first way is, is it a context error that we you know, we had the information, we made a decision, it just didn't work out. Or is it an error that we made because we didn't take all the information? We didn't get all all, all the you know, everything that we needed before we made the decision. <laughs> or we simply just said, well, we're the leader. This is just the way it's going to be. And if that was the case and that hit the wrong way, we ought to be willing to apologize for not only the decision that was made, but the but but the lead up to how the decision was made. And if you can do that, then you create social capital. And we talk about the idea that we create social capital in every interaction. Right. So every interaction matters because every interaction could be the one that people talk about for the rest of their lives. And if you lead with that, if you lead with that, if you walk into every conversation, knowing that that might be the conversation that people talk about in 25 years, you put yourself in a situation to know and understand that, th that you're going to be at your best or give yourself the best chance in that moment. And so if you do that, now you're building social capital and you're putting all the social capital in the bucket. So when something goes wrong and it will, and it, it will, it will most certainly will that you've developed enough momentum to kind of, you know, absorb that hit because people know that you're coming from the right place. Mm -hmm. If I walk past 
in, in my and there are days that I feel like I'm walking past and not walking to, and I'm walking through the building just to check off that I've been through the building. And I've done that before. And I, and when I, I can feel myself doing it just to check it off, I'm not connected to people. And therefore, even if I can check it off and say, I got a chance to see everybody I did, every day, I didn't see everybody that day. And that's not giving me momentum. I would much rather not get to one area of the building in the day and spend more time in a, in a particular area building relationships because then the next day when I go to the next spot, I feel like I'm fully invested in that spot. So we really, we really concentrate on that mentality of, of every interaction when it comes to leadership because you just never know which is going to be the one that they talk about in 25 years. And a lot of times people will come, we, like we live, think about what we do. We live in an organization. We live in a world where you don't get the immediate gratification for the work that you do. Think about how many times you've had a kid come back to you after 15 years in your class and find you on the street and just tap you on the shoulder and say, man, Tom, I really loved having you as a teacher. I loved, I loved your class. And what you want to say is, man, you could have said something. Like, you were here every day. You were never absent. And then you're not going to tell me that you had a good time? We don't get the immediate gratification. So if we're always waiting for that, we're always waiting for that. So I yeah. think that the more that you can develop momentum with every interaction, the better chance that you have to lead the people that you serve. Yeah. And to, to be able to, to apologize authentically, authentically for yeah. what you've done wrong because you are going to do something wrong. Yeah, I think you have to kind of own that. You have to, and you're right, the authenticity in any apology situation, obviously the the people on the receiving end need to be open to the apology, et cetera, depending on what's happened. If, you know, if it's a parent meeting that's gone sideways or whatever, you, you were, you were making me think about situations where say principals are consulting with faculty about a decision and they get multiple perspectives, multiple ideas. They use their judgment. They take all the information and they make a decision and it doesn't work out. From your perspective, is there any response needed? Because there are, there are, say, for example, teachers on staff who are saying, see, I told you we should have done it the way I said or the way we said, because he made that decision or she made that decision. It didn't work out and we knew it wouldn't work out. Is, is, there, is there a need to go back to the faculty when a decision like that doesn't work out? Is there a need to go back and, and revisit the process of making that decision? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I really do. I think you, I think it get, it provides some context for why you made the decision that you made, but it also shows your vulnerability that you're not mm -hmm. perfect, and you know, and you, and you make mistakes, and you don't expect that of the people that you lead either, right? Like, you know, and I, I come back to and just tell them, look, I, I am so sorry that that this happened the way that it happened. I'm truly sorry. Here's what we're going to do moving forward to fix the situation. Thank you for your help in getting us to that place. But I just want to be honest with you. When I make a mis mistake, I'm going to tell you that I made a mistake. And I want you to understand that, you, you know, all of us are going to do that. And if you can't admit that, that you made a mistake, then you're never going to grow. And I can't grow if I don't admit it and neither can you. So, right. you know, I mean, we don't, we don't play in the safe zone around here. Right. I mean, we, I want, I want people to risk take. And I, I do want people, there's a difference between fail and failure for me fail. You know, you fail and you grow fail and you grow failure is you've, it's done. It's over that right. you've decided that it's over and you're not going to do anything else with it. So you can fail and grow, but, um, but in doing that, you have to be willing to say that it just didn't work out the way that I had anticipated. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned throughout my career, and of course, one of my favorite expressions is experience comes from poor judgment. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you make you make decisions, they don't work out, you learn from them and experience them. But one of the one of the best pieces of advice I think I was given, and it's that expression, the idea that uh, the more you agonize over a decision before you make it, the less you'll regret the decision after you make it. And the idea of explaining and making sure that say, hey, hey, here's why we're not going in this direction. We appreciate your input, but here's why we can't do that. Or the explanation as to how you made that decision. I think it's a very important part of connecting with faculty and letting them know that we appreciated your input, but here's why we're not going in that direction. If, if leaders, I think, just ignore and, and make a decision without explanation, then sometimes faculty start to look at consultation as a bit of a cynical process of Correct. checking boxes. Well, yeah, I, I consulted, but he just does, Tom just does what he wants to anyway. He right. just talks to us and then does his own thing. So, um, but Tom, that doesn't, that's not even about the decision. You know, people yeah. are going to, the, the, the way, the reason that people say that about the leader in the space is because they don't know or connect with the leader in the space. Good point. If I have, yeah. if I've developed momentum with people because they know who I am and that I'm authentic mm -hmm. and that I'm going to actually, you know, think about the before actually making them mm -hmm. and be invested in them as people, then the decision is what it is. But they know yeah. you as a person are going to do everything that you can to make the right decision, even if it wasn't the right decision. So that's why it goes back to all of these interactions. And if they believe that you're truly invested in them on a on a daily basis, then when the decision, when the, you're constantly building social capital for when the decision goes sideways. And when even if it goes sideways, if they believe in you as as the leader in the space, because, you know, you've been you've put yourself in a situation to know and understand that that you believe in them. Now you've you've thought about it and and you can you can go forward. So here it's yeah. it's like it's it's like uh, crisis plans. Everybody's, you know, is really, you know, making sure that crisis plans are part of what we do. And we've talked to our We've talked to our younger, like our elementary group about it, and we want to make sure that we get kids to the right spot and everything like that. But these kids are going to look to the adult in the room and have this, you know, so however we get them to where they're going, right. they look to the adult first. They look to the leader first. And if they trust the leader, whatever the leader says to move forward, that's where they're, that's what they're going to do. If they don't trust the leader, they're going to be like, maybe we should try it this way or this way or this way. And right. we got to make sure that they trust the person in the space Otherwise, there's no way that they're going to follow the person in the space. Yeah, it speaks to relationships and the importance of connecting with people 100%. on a human human level. Uh, and then you do have, and, and not that, I, I don't know if I want to say it this way, but you, but you do have leeway. You have an opportunity to, because there's trust there that yes. you've thought through the decision and, and people trust that. Now, as a leader, um, I hear this a lot, you know, for, especially, you know, when you turn the lens around, when you think about Where's the line, for example, between leading and micromanaging? You know, sometimes it, the the lens from the the leader is I'm just trying to lead. I'm trying to be, you know, uh, show the vision, trying to lead forward. But then, from a teacher's perspective, it feels like they're being micromanaged. But at the same time, maybe there is something that maybe as a teacher, I'm not leadable, if you will. If if you know, if any time there's input, so where's that line? Like, how does a principal know or a leader know? There's a lot of well-intentioned leaders. They're implementing a new system. We've got a new program coming in, or we've got a new structure we're putting in place. Whatever the case might be, and these a well-intentioned leader ends up crossing the line from leading something to micromanaging something. So, how do you avoid that from your perspective? What are some aspects of leadership that I can reflect on to ensure that? 
I'm actually leading and not just micromanaging people. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing is when you're making the decision, look to the room that you're making the decision in. And if you're the only person in the room making the decision, it's much more likely that it's going to felt like they were micromanaged. Mm -hmm. So how many people did you have involved in the conversation leading up to the place that the decision was made? And were the people in that group willing to, you know, build some momentum for, um, for the worthy. So here, so all, all organizations are built into five different levels. Okay. And let's say that you as the leader, let's say that you as the leader say, well, it kind of goes like this. Let's say that you as the leader say that I, okay, everybody, I need you to run through that wall. Okay. I need you to run through that wall because on the other side of that wall is something that's going to make you a better teacher. It's going to make us a better organization, but it's on the other side of that wall. So I need you to run through that wall. Okay. So the ones just start running because you told them, so they're going to go and they're going to hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. They're going to get through it, yeah. but you told them to go. So they went, the twos are like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to wait until the ones are almost through the wall. And when the ones are almost through the wall, I'm going to push them. And then I'm going to show up on the other side. And it's going to look like I was one of the first people over here, even though I didn't do all the work to get to that spot. Right. <laughs> yeah. The three, the threes are like, I love teaching dinosaurs. You know, I know I'm not supposed to teach dinosaurs, but I'm really good at teaching dinosaurs. So I'm going to stay here teaching dinosaurs for a little bit. Right. And then when the yeah. hole in the wall is perfectly framed out and swept up and wide enough where I can bring my dinosaur stuff, then I'll come to the other side of the wall. <laughs> the, the fours are like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk to the wall as slowly as I possibly can. Because my hope is by the time I get to the wall, there's a change in leadership and you people are gonna make me run through a wall that's on the other side of this room, okay? And <laughs> yeah. the fives are like, I'm not going, you can't make me go. And not yeah. only am I not gonna go, but I'm gonna take every brick in the school district and put it against the wall. So when the ones start running through it, there's more bricks to get through to get to the other side, okay? Right. So right. here, so the thing is that all of these people take on initiatives in different ways. And sometimes it depends on the initiative, right? Because if it's a curriculum initiative that somebody's really excited about changing their curriculum, they could be the one in that situation that just wants to get through because they want the stuff, right? If it's a right, tech right. initiative and everybody's getting an iPad for the people that go through <laughs> first, they're going to go, right? right. But right. And then the threes are like, man, I just like teaching what I'm teaching. And so don't screw my stuff up. So I'll come to the other side. I just want to bring my stuff. And then you got the other two groups. And this is where you get into the people that feel like they're micromanaged all the time. The reason that the fours and fives feel like they're micromanaged is because they don't feel they, they, they don't feel value in the work that they do because somebody knocked them down at some point. People don't wake up in the morning, Tom, and say, I can't wait to be a five today, right? Like <laughs> a five, five is not a place that you aspire to be. It's a place that you end up. It's like going to Denny's. Like nobody right. goes to Denny's. You just end up there. This is what happens with fives. <laughs> they end up being in a situation where they've been knocked down so many times that they don't want to move forward because they don't know if their work has value. And these are the people that feel like they're being micromanaged all the time a lot. When you know that the work that you do is going to provide an opportunity to get better, you don't feel like you're micromanaged because you know that the work that you're doing has value for the next level that you're going to. Mm -hmm. And if you can just provide that for people, then the then then the idea that they're being micromanaged gets gets put to the side, which means that you need to know in your organization, you know, who's in that one through five group, but also how can they help move people forward? Because what we found in the research when we did the and, and I'm not the only person that feels this way, like right? Yeah. Just like he calls them trailblazers, pioneers, standard by stay at home. Every, you know, Everett Rogers is all about early early majority, early yeah, um, 
early innovators, early majority, late majority laggers, that kind of thing. So it's yeah. not like I, I just wasn't that smart when I did my dissertation. They're just one, two, three, four, five for me. All right. So you just want to make sure that you put yourself in a situation where you know and understand where those people are. And what we found in the research was the most influence that you have is with the group in front of you and the group behind you. So the twos have influence with ones and threes. So can you group that together, these people, so they all feel like they're moving in the same direction? Because if you feel like you're moving in the same direction with a group of people, you're less likely to feel micromanaged because the thought of micromanaging means one person is telling you exactly what to do moving forward as opposed mm -hmm. to a group of people moving in the right direction. Yeah, oh, I, I, I absolutely love that. And and what I love most about it is that that idea that you have influence around you. So as a leader, it makes me think that, hey, let's not run through the wall too quickly here. Let's get it right. right. And let's slow down and let's let's make sure. And that influences the ones and the twos. And, yeah. and we can also look and say, hey, listen, there's a lot of aspects that we are already doing and show people where they're already doing it. So you can bring some of your dinosaurs with you. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden mm -hmm. I've got my one through threes together kind of moving in a in, a, in more of a, a situation. So, um, yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. And you're right. I mean, there's lots of different analogies. and and uh, But the one, two, three, four, five actually I think kind of works. And yeah. uh, I really like Thanks. that. And the other thing... Uh, <laughs> I want to it say. passed. It passed my <laughs> dissertation, so we're well, out. You know, yeah, so, the other thing about well, the that, that's so. fine. That's fine, Joe. It passed your dissertation, <laughs> but you just got the Tom seal of approval. So now, now you. Now can, we're good. Now you're good. We're good. Okay. It's about well, you know. It's, I knew, it's, I knew you were the, waiting we for that. Leader, <laughs> agree. Agree. We as the leader can actually choose the wall too, right? Think about right. it. We can choose right. the wall. Do we choose the wall with the drywall, or do we choose the wall with the brick? Brick. Right. That's another conversation <laughs> that we have yeah. to talk about. It's easier yeah. to get through the drywall than it is the brick. Absolutely. So let's help. Let's yeah. help people. And some leaders choose the brick because they're a sucker for punishment. But uh, <laughs> exactly, and it makes okay. me nuts. And it gives everybody a bad name, to be honest. That's right, right. And and you're right. You don't you you don't choose to go to Denny's. You just end up there. Uh, but but don't sleep on the Grand Slam breakfast. That I is know, always I know. A good, always especially on your birthday. Dude. Especially There's always birthday. one, dude. You're, going, yeah, you're right. that guy. There's always one. I love the twofer, man. I love that's the twofer, right. That's, man. Right. that's right. right. The, the endless pancakes. Come on now. Uh, good hash browns, too. I don't know if I go there for lunch or dinner, but you end up at Denny's for dinner. You definitely are out of options. Uh, shout out to there. Denny's. No, uh, not that anybody, from, not that anybody from Denny's is this. That's fun. This podcast is brought to you by Denny's. No, I'm just kidding. Right now it uh, is. Now it is. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, they'll be phoning All right. me. Uh, so as we finish up today, Joe, I want to I want to think about those who have aspiration, and I want to start with this idea of I'm a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I aspire to become an assistant principal. What makes me a strong candidate? What what can I do to authentically not not again? I'm not suggesting in a superficial or manipulative way, but I mean authentically. What can I do to set myself up for that potential next step in my career? I'm a classroom teacher. I want to be assistant principal. What are some things I can do as a classroom teacher to set myself up to be a strong candidate? The first thing is do your job really well, because if yeah. you're always looking for the next job, then people are going to run, you know, they're, they're going to say, well, you're just kind of passing to the next spot to get to mm -hmm. what you want to. And you're, you're taken away from this current situation that you're in. The other thing as the leader is in, in my situation is you have to know your people well enough to know what their aspirations are. And I think that there are too many people that touch people, you know, tap people on the shoulder and say, hey, I think you should lead. I think you should lead. And at the same time, now you're devaluing. A so I did that. I, I have an incredible sixth grade uh, teacher here. And he, I mean, he's phenomenal. 
And I remember at some point I was having a conversation. I'm just walking down the hallway and I asked him if he was ever, you know, ever thought about being a principal. I think you'd be a fantastic principal. I think you'd be one. You'd be a wonderful leader in that space. And people would definitely lean into you. And I think you'd be fantastic. And I walked out going, you know, here, I gave this guy something to think about. I really, you know, encouraged him and that kind of thing. And the next day I'm walking down that same hallway and he called me into his uh, room and, he, and I, I went into his room and he's and I sat down at his desk and he's like, you know, you really made me mad. You really, you really upset me. And I'm like, my goodness, what did I, I'm so sorry. I was thinking about, did I do something else? I didn't even think about this conversation. He's like, you asked about what I want to do in the future. I want to be the best teacher in the world for these kids. And what you, what you did yesterday was make me believe that I needed to be something that I'm not right now. And so the first thing, and I was just, I was heartbroken because he's an incredible teacher. And I think that I didn't, and I knew him well, but I didn't know his aspirations. So the first thing is know the aspirations of those that you lead. If you're trying to push your aspiration on somebody because you're trying to create, you know, another you, we got a problem, right? So the first thing is know the aspirations. Okay. So when it comes down to that, that person in particular, do your job really, really well, then look for opportunities to enhance that you know, your own uh, ability to lead and opportunity to lead through things that are going on in the school. What are you doing differently than other people are doing? Because that's what's going to be noticed. Are you doing something outside of, of what you, you know, what you're contracted to do, essentially? And uh, what does that look like and how you can you create some momentum, you know, in that? And to be really honest, I'll, I'm going to look at whether or not you know, how you interact with the people around you. And if the interactions that you have with the people around you are authentic, if they are born out of making them better, then you're going to get a look before somebody else does. So I think those are some things that are really big. And in the world that we live in, we can like it or we don't have to like it. We can be upset about it. But the better social presence that you have in terms of the leadership capacity that you'd like to bring, the better chance you're going to have to be noticed in a place that you wouldn't normally be noticed. And again, you don't have to love that. I'm not asking people to love that, but you do have to acknowledge that it's real. Yeah. That, you know, there is that, again, I mentioned that earlier, the notion of a, the, the charismatic caricature leader, but, but there is something to that where you have to be, excuse me, you have to be in front of people. You have to be able to, command a space in a way that that people are again trust you um and are drawn to to be influenced by you for sure would you would you say anything different to a principal who was aspiring for a central office position is there anything about that is there is there different probably similar in terms of the school community but are there other things that principals can think about if i'm a principal and i aspire to a central office position because i feel like it can have a greater influence from from that position what are some things maybe for principals to, to consider beyond what you just described for a teacher? Because I'm sure a lot there's a lot of overlap between them. But, yeah. but what is it for principals that might think about to make me, again, an authentically strong candidate for a central office position? Well, I think the first thing you should do is just ask if they want you because there's no superintendents left in the country right now. I mean, everybody's getting out. So, I mean, right, like, right, that's, fair, the, fair. that's the, I think I got to be real careful about the situation that you want to get yourself into. I found myself in a tremendous situation. I was the fifth superintendent in six years when I got here. Wow. And wow. we're now this is year 12 for me. And I've just, you know, I think it has more to do with the environment than it does with me. But at the same time, uh, we, we found a way to work together and kind of move things mm-hmm. forward. So I think the the idea that I keep in mind from a principal lens is, again, 
you know, if you're leading a group of people and the reaction to your leadership from that group of people is positive, you're going to get different opportunities moving forward. If you want to get more involved in the community or you want a bigger social media presence or whatever, then I would encourage you to do that. But it still comes back down to are you doing the work in a way that is moving people forward? And um, and and I think that has to be at the heart of what you do, but you do have to, I mean, I think you have to do, you put yourself out there from time to time. People ask me from time to time, like you do all these videos and you do like, you, you put yourself in, on a camera and doesn't that seem a little egotistical? I mean, it seems like that's about you. Is that like, what's really going on there? And, and I totally understand that. And my answer to them is at some point as the leader in this school district, you know, th that there, at some point there will be a television camera, or a radio or, you know, or a, just a phone in front of you where you're going to have to explain something or, or talk about something that is completely uncomfortable. And if the reaction from the people that are watching that is he doesn't feel comfortable, he must be hiding something. He's not, that right. doesn't, doesn't, like he's searching for the right words, then there's, there's something else going on here. Then you've lost your message. So I don't want, I, if people want to be upset with the, with the content that I deliver, in, in a time of crisis, then I'm, I, I have to be okay with that. But if the answer is he doesn't feel comfortable, so there must be something hiding, then I, that's on me. So I get myself in front of a camera often because again, I'm just building social capital for when something goes wrong. And I want to make sure that the reaction is about the content, not my reaction to the collect to the question. Yeah, for sure. That that it's a really good point, Joe. And I think that that's where that point about uh, being comfortable, that social mm -hmm. capital, the ability to deliver a message. I think those characteristics are important, and I think you can develop those. You can practice those, yeah. but they are they are important for us. Uh, fantastic. Uh, two questions left, Joe. As we finish up today, uh, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one. And again, you can take this in any direction you, you'd like. But the question is simply, educationally speaking, what what keeps you up at night? Wow. Uh, well, I think the thing that keeps me up at night the most is that people don't see the value in their work. Because again, we don't get the immediate gratification for what we do. And so right. when you don't get the immediate gratification for what you do, you figure you, you, you wonder why you do what you do. So what keeps me up is that people walk into buildings every day feeling like they're just a teacher, or they're just a paraprofessional or just a cook, or they're just a bus driver. They're just they're just they're only they're just. When they, when they say that, when you say that you're just, when you say that you're only, you devalue all of your work. And not only do you devalue your work, but you give the person that you're talking to license to do exactly the same. And if we don't come to the conclusion that nobody's going to change the way that they talk about us until we change the way that we talk about us, we're going to continue to get what we've always gotten. And that keeps me up every night because I see the great things that are happening around us. And if those things aren't talked about, then the narrative of people that went to school 25 years ago when they didn't get a second chicken sandwich at lunch or they got put against the wall at recess, they got a grade they didn't deserve or the coach didn't play them, then that becomes the narrative of who we are today. And that makes me nuts. So what do we do to help each other create momentum for each other? And it's not just about telling the story of schools, right? And I've been a big proponent of that. I understand that. But at the same time, it's not just about telling. It's about leveraging the message. And you leverage the message by making sure that you provide value for the people who you work with. We talk a lot about the idea of recognizing the great work of colleagues, acknowledging the great work of colleagues, extending the great work of colleagues. Because if you do that, if you recognize it, acknowledge it, and extend it, now you've figured out a way to create momentum internally. 
And nobody changes the conversation externally until we change the conversation internally. Think about how many times that people go next door to a colleague and have a conversation about a schedule change or logistically what's going on or something that they're unhappy about versus how often do they go next door and say, I just taught a really great lesson. And the kids got it and they connected and they loved it. And the smiles on their faces were amazing. They don't do that because they're afraid right. of the reaction. Not the reaction is going to be, well, that's not that big a deal, but it might just be, oh, that was neat. And then they just move on with their day. And then mm -hmm. you don't feel valued in the work. So right. what do you do to make sure you set up a situation that recognizes the greatness of your colleague, acknowledge the greatness of your colleague and extend the greatness of your colleague? So here, I, I'm, I get fired up about this time because if <laughs> so, if I'm walking down a second grade hallway and I walk into a second grade teacher's room and I see them doing great things and I acknowledge to that second grade teacher that they're doing great things, I've done uh, this. That's great. And a lot of us do that. OK, but when you extend the conversation. When you extend a conversation to the eighth grade science teacher who has no business of being in the second grade hallway and tell the eighth grade science teacher about the great things that happened in second grade, what inevitably happens is the eighth grade science teacher walks to the second grade classroom to tell the second grade teacher that she's doing great things. And the reason that he does it is because at some point somebody did it for him. If you extend that conversation to the spouse or the parent or the kid or, the or somebody outside of the school for that second grade teacher, now we've created this momentum that we can change the conversation about what we do. It keeps me up at night every night because I see the great things. And when these aren't the conversations that are being had, it makes me crazy that other people can determine our worth because they went to school 25 years ago. Right. Yeah. No, changing that internal conversation is so powerful. The way that we sometimes don't, we just don't celebrate the successes and the great things that are happening. Uh, last question as we finish up here. Uh, it's a general question about success. You can talk about it personally or professionally in whatever direction you want to. But the question is simply this. If a random person stopped you on the street and said, hey, Joe, what is, well, they wouldn't know your name. Uh, what <laughs> is your, they're random. What is your definition of success? How would you answer them? That, that's probably the hardest question because I think it's defined differently for every person. For me, it's was I able to put people in a position to do their best work and feel like they're valued in the work that they do? And that's success to me. It's not about a score. It's not. It's about people walking into this building every day and feeling like the work that they do has value and being able to tell the person that they teach with that they have value and that you have value. And then also walking out, knowing and understanding that a conversation that they have about the value that they provide to the fact that they're changing the lives of kids is, is, is going to get some momentum moving forward. So my success is for when I see people around here doing things that they never thought that they could, because the environment that's provided to them by them, but the, the environment that's provided uh, allows them to do the best work that they thought possible. Yeah, that, that, is, that is success to a T for sure, Joe. Uh, listeners, as we finish up, you can and should follow or connect with Joe online. Of course, on Twitter and Instagram, Joe's handle is at Joe underscore Sanfilippo. Um, I'll have links in the show notes for that. Joe's on Facebook. He's on LinkedIn. And you can check out his website as well, www.jsanfilippo.com. Again, I have links in the show notes for all of that. Uh, Joe, really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the conversation, Tom. Thank you so much. I hope everybody has a fantastic school year and go crickets. Fantastic. Thanks, Joe.
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to share and celebrate the release of my latest book that I co-authored with my colleagues, Cassandra Erkins and Nicole Dimmich. The book is called Jackpot, Nurturing Student Investment Through Assessment, and we are super excited about this book, our latest release, in our series about our six assessment tenets. Since we wrote Essential Assessment in 2017, which highlighted what we believe to be the six timeless research-supported assessment tenets, we've gone about the business of writing a book about each one of our tenets, you know, taking a deeper dive. So in 2018, we published Instructional Agility, the book about how you make instructional maneuvers mid-lesson, how you make adjustments in real time. 2019, we published the book Growing Tomorrow Citizens in Today's Classrooms, where we talk about assessing seven sort of key competencies for the 21st century. That book replaced a book that we would have done about assessment purpose, but we didn't feel at this point in most of our assessment journey uh, for most people that a book about the difference between formative and summative assessment. We didn't really feel like there was enough there for a book. So that book replaced that one. And now here in 2022, we released Jackpot about student investment. Future offerings from us will be about assessment architecture, which is about assessment design, interpretation, uh, about success criteria, and the communication of assessment results, which is feedback and grading. So stay tuned for those. But let's get back to Jackpot because that really is the jackpot. That is the big win in assessment. And I've mentioned this here before on the podcast, and I mention it constantly in my workshops, that the ultimate end game of developing our assessment expertise is not our expertise. Rather, it's developing our expertise so students can do this on their own behalves. Now, I'll never forget the moment very early in my assessment journey where this came clear to me. I was in Portland, Oregon. I was at the Assessment Training Institute Summer Conference, and Rick Stiggins was doing his opening keynote. And he was talking a bit about the notion that students are the primary users of assessment results or data in the classroom. And he said, and I can still hear it ringing in my ear, he said, the person doing the assessing does the learning. It's brilliant. In that moment, it became crystal clear to me that assessment needs to eventually become a student-centered experience. Now, they, that may not happen immediately, and it may not be immediately possible, but it has to be the ultimate prize. It has to be the jackpot of our assessment work. So if we take Rick's words to heart, then we realize quickly that in so many situations, if assessment is teacher-centered, then teachers will learn things about their students that the students don't actually know about themselves, right? The person doing the assessing does the learning. Now, the bigger picture here is students becoming more self-regulatory about their learning. And it's our contention, Cassandra, Nicole, and I, it's our contention that student investment occurs when assessment and the self-regulation of learning engage in a symbiotic relationship. Each serves as an input to the other. It's not an if-then sequence. It's, it's a mutually sort of supportive symbiotic relationship. Now, the most common conceptualization of the self-regulation of learning sort of envisions self-regulation as a series of phases that students continually cycle through, right? Typically three or four. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but if we take that three-phase model I've mentioned before from Barry Zimmerman, there is, as a reminder, the forethought phase, which is about goal setting, outcome expectancies, what is my level of efficacy about what we're about to do. There's the performance phase, which is self-monitoring, self-observation, monitoring my on-task behavior, as well as 
observing my performance. And then there's the reflection phase, you know, causal att attribution. To what do I attribute my success? Am I satisfied with the outcome? What adaptations am I going to make? And that cycles back to the forethought phase, right? Now, those three phases line perfectly with Royce Sadler's three assessment questions, right? And you think about the questions that Sadler said, if students are going to reflect on their work as self-assessors, they need to answer three questions. Where am I going? Where am I now? How do I close the gap? Where am I going? Aligns perfectly with the forethought phase. Where am I now? That's the performance phase. How do I close the gap? That's the reflection phase. So assessment is the input in that we use the assessment cycle to teach students the skills and habits of being more self-regulatory about their learning. But because we're teaching students to be more self-regulatory about their learning, their assessment results start to show improvement. Each is an input and an output. That's the symbiotic relationship. So in Jackpot, what we do is each chapter is centered around one of the other five tenets. Because the one thing that the three of us continually emphasize is that our six assessment tenants are not silos. Each one depends on the other five to fully thrive in any classroom. And there really is no hierarchy, though we would probably say that student investment is a first among equals, if you will. So the chapters are all structured identically, and we kind of go through the same sequence in every chapter. And, and listen, we're, we're really excited about this. The, every chapter begins with a case study. Okay, a real-life teacher's well-intended effort to increase student investment that kind of goes sideways. And we give a bit of an analysis about what went wrong in that situation, which leads to the next section, celebrations and considerations. So even though the case study went sideways, ultimately, there are things in every case study to celebrate. The strengths of it are highlighted, and, and the research to support why those strategies were effective is also highlighted in that section, which then leads to the section taking action. So in that section, we highlight the research that underpins the components that were missing from the case study and provide some suggestions for a more thoughtful implementation. So speaking of implementation, the section four of every chapter is a learning continuum for implementation. These are tools that'll help you as a teacher scaffold your strategy implementation as you kind of move forward and try to expand the level of student investment in your classroom. And it also allows you to monitor your own progress and also monitor how your students are doing in expanding uh, that, that student investment in your classroom. Section five, tips for moving forward. This is a quick hitter. These are quick bullet points, tips to keep in mind as teachers begin nurturing student investment in their classrooms, which leads to questions, section six, questions to guide conversations with students, because obviously we have to bring students in on the conversation. That's pretty self-explanatory, but again, a bullet point list uh, of questions you can use to facilitate authentic conversations with your students that facilitate more investment on their part and also allow you to monitor the effectiveness of your efforts. And every chapter closes with the section called Dangerous Detours and Seductive Shortcuts. I love that. Uh, these are pitfalls, easily made errors that can derail even the best laid plans for implementation. They're very alluring and, and yet they'll ultimately lead to disappointment and or frustration. Listen, we are really excited and proud of this book. Uh, we're thrilled that it's finally out, and we, we hope you'll take the opportunity to check it out. There is a link in the show notes, of course, if you're interested. And just as a reminder, if you are interested in multiple copies for your site, order directly from Solution Tree. Uh, not Amazon or any place like that, because there are discount thresholds at certain increments. So for example, if you were to order 10 copies of the book, 
there would be a 10% discount and so on. There are, look, there are other thresholds, but I don't want to get into that too much because I'm not here trying to do the hard sell on you, okay? I just wanted you to be aware that the book is out and we're really excited about it. I just wanted you to know, um, you know, some schools I've, I've had in the past order multiple copies and they said they ordered off Amazon. I'm like, oh, you should have ordered from the publisher. You could have got a discount, right? So then they didn't realize that there was a bit of savings there. So Again, super excited about this book. Um, when we keep our eye on the prize, if you will, when student investment becomes our focus, where through assessment, students become more self-regulatory about their learning, we will truly hit the jackpot of education. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you have questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder also to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning events this fall, but also the books that we made available uh, to you as well. Next week, again, we're back to weekly. Uh, next week, my guest will be my friend and fellow Canadian, actually, fellow Vancouverite, Livia Chan. Livia is a teacher, she's an author, she's a speaker, and she's the digital coordinator for the Teach Better team. So next week, Livia and I are going to dive into developing strong relationships with our students, and I'm really excited to have Livia on the podcast. Now listen, before we close out, I want to offer something to you, the listeners who listen to the podcast to the very end. I know not everybody listens to this last closing section, so because you're listening to this last closing segment... It means you are truly a loyal listener, and I appreciate that, and I respect that. I know not everyone does that, so here's my offer to you. The first 20 listeners who send me an email, again, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, send me an email with a mailing address, whether it's your home or work, either one's fine. The first 20 listeners that do that are going to receive a copy of the book Jackpot. I'm going to send it to you free, free of charge. I'll ship it to you. You'll get a, a copy of that book. After that, the next 20, if I haven't received my shipment yet from Solution Tree, the next 20, if look, if assuming I get 40 emails, which is probably not going to happen, I'll send you a copy of our other book that was released this year called Concise Answers to Frequently Asked Questions About Assessment and Grading. So free book in it for you because you've listened here to the very end. I know not everybody does that, so don't be telling everybody. Let's just keep it on the DL. It's just Look, it's just between you and I, right? Okay, send me an email, mailing address. First 20 listeners who send me that email. I'll get those books in the mail as quickly as I can, but I am on the road a lot this month, but I will reply and let you know that I'll get those to you as soon as we can. Like I said... We're really proud of both of these books. We're excited about them. And I just want to get them in the hands of educators so you, they can act. I just, I, you know, we just want to get them out there. So send that email. I'll get the books to you as soon as I can. Again, I'm still waiting for more to arrive, my shipment, uh, so I can get them out to you. Uh, but hopefully I'll have them very soon. So I'll let you know when those books will be on the way. But send me an email. And again, thanks for listening to this last segment. I want to just thank you for that and reward you for that. Again, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will always help grow the podcast reach. And of course, if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.